We're going to continue our study for those of you who are just picking up and haven't been here. We've been studying the book of John and seeing these themes of new creation over and over and how the world in a real sense and we as people of the world are being born again. And last week we looked at the identity of John the Baptist to kind of flesh out a bit of who he is and what role he plays in that cosmic story of redemption. This week we're going to shift from the pointer to the point himself. Remember last week John was telling us to look to Jesus. He was telling us that he's not the point, that Jesus is the point. And we saw that Jesus told us who John is. So now John is going to give us, in a real sense, who Jesus is as we look at this text. And there's four identity markers that we'll see here this morning um, that point to the fact that Jesus is the new creation that Israel has been waiting for. And to its, and to its surprise, Israel's surprise that is, the whole world, which includes us, Gentiles and Jews, are being renewed by living in Christ. There's a reality to that that we'll see this morning. So again, the text is John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. John writes, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy word this morning, we pray that at it, as it, it has been set apart, we pray that we would be set apart, that we would be consecrated. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed by it. Lord, we confess that your word is inspired, and we pray that from that inspiration of the scripture, that you would inspire us, that you would speak directly to our hearts to the depths of our soul, so that we might see who you are truly, that we might behold your glory and see you clearly in this text this morning. Please be with me as I preach. Lord, I pray that the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, there's four things that John the Baptist tells us about Christ in this passage. If you're a note taker, they are these four things. Number one, he is, that is Jesus is the Lamb of God. Number two, he takes away the sin of the world. Number three, he baptizes with the Spirit. And number four, he is the Son of God. It's a profession of divinity there, and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we can get to these four uh, identifiers, these four descriptors of who Christ is and who he has been revealed to by John, we need to get a little bit more context. And this isn't just a context of this passage. I want to jump way, 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 way out and get a cosmic picture of what's going on by looking at the major shifts in history. And I'm talking about all of history. I'm talking about creation, 
fall, and redemption. You've probably heard those themes before. That's kind of the cycle that all of the world is working in. Creation, fall, and redemption. So the cosmic story, as you know, it begins with the Word. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was God, and they were there in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth. Right? That's, that was Jesus there with the Father. And the Spirit, He was there too. Remember, He was hovering over the waters, the, the waters that were dark and formless, and they had no shape. And the Spirit came and He brought shape to them. And the divine Logos, remember we said that, it's not so much of a what, but a who. That ordering principle of the universe, what kind of keeps everything in order, that logic of the order that we see, that is Jesus. And as He spoke, and His Word is brought forth, that ordered the formless and void waters. That's how creation came, by the spoken word of God. God speaks and we have creation. And then the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he stood back and he said, this is good. He looked at his creation and he said, I like it. It's good. It's the way that I meant it to be. So we shouldn't start at fall. That's that's where we get messed up a lot of times. A lot of people want to start with the fall. But the reality is, is that we had a fall from something. From a good state where Jesus and the Father and the Spirit can be there and say, we made it good. We did a good thing there. So this process continued on to the creation of man, who we also pronounced to be good. Man was created good. We were not created sinners. Do you realize that? He said the woman was very good. And interestingly enough, as it comes to, as we come to Adam, we think about who this person is. Adam is called a son of God. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but just keep that in your back pocket. Adam, this first man, is called a son of God. So Adam, the son of God, is told to take dominion of the earth by naming it and bringing further order, kind of like how God is. He's reflecting God because he's made in his image to bring order to the earth by working and keeping the garden that he's given. God says, name the animals, bring order, bring structure, work the garden, bring fruit, multiply, grow the earth. And this is a good thing. This is a good process. But something happened, didn't it? We had the fall. We had a fall from a good state. The serpent comes and he sows a lie. He's doing essentially the opposite of what the word has done at the beginning, right? The word speaks and he speaks truth. And that truth is reality. It's the things that we see that are good. But a lie is a distortion of reality. Think about that. What Satan is doing is he's coming to sow the opposite of what God is doing. God speaks truth and Satan sows a lie. And he says things like, did God actually say? He'll say, does, does he, is he holding back on you? Will you really die? You won't really die, will you? He didn't really mean that. Twisting what God says. And in a real way, he's manipulating and molesting the good thing that God has created. And what happened? This distorted reality is spoken to Adam and Eve, and they received the lie. They didn't reject it. They didn't say no. They didn't take that uh, stance of dominion and say, no, God said. They said, I think you might be right. I think God might be holding back on us. They believed that they could handle reality better than God. That's what they were doing in that moment. They trusted Satan more than God. And they thought that God was actually holding back on them by just not letting them have that one tree. They think, well, why didn't he give us all the trees? Why didn't he give us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is he holding back? So they believed Satan. And once they ate of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes, it says, were opened. They could see and they realized Oh, we're more powerful than God. We, we can finally take over the world. No. That's not at all what they noticed. They immediately realized they were naked. They need covered. 
They're scared. They're ashamed. They're freaking out. That feeling that you get, right? You realize this. This this realization was not that they were now more powerful, but that they could not overthrow God. Rather, it was immediate regret and shame. This is the effects of sin. You've felt this before, haven't you? You all in here have sinned. If you, if you had anything to confess, and I hope you did in that moment of confession of sin, there's lots of things to confess. You know that feeling in your gut that you get when you've really messed up. When you said that wrong word, where you, where you overstep that boundary, where you start to kind of sweat a little bit and you get that nervous feeling like, oh, I don't feel right about this. Is, this is not good. Maybe you say a cutting word at someone to, to put them down and you think, well, that'll make me taller. I'll feel better by that. But you don't. As soon as you say it, you realize, oh, man, I am, I am nasty. That's what you feel like, don't you? You feel kind of ashamed and exposed and you realize that you're no better than that person. This is how Adam and Eve felt immediately when they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They tried to cover themselves up, didn't they? They were naked and they said, well, we'll sow some fig leaves on. We'll cover ourselves and God won't see us then. We'll be able to somehow cover our shame. And we laugh at that, but we do this too, don't we? We start to kind of throw out excuses and we make reasons for our sins. Well, I did this because this. That's just patching on a fig leaf. It's trying to say that, well, I sinned because of this. Well, it was the serpent's fault. It was this person's fault. They pushed me to it. I didn't get enough sleep that night. I'm fasting. I'm, I'm doing whatever. And we excuse ourselves for sin. That's the fig leaves. But that's not actually a remedy, is it? That doesn't work. It doesn't work by covering ourselves up with excuses. We all still feel just as naked. And that's why Adam and Eve were still afraid when God came out. Remember? God started to walk through the garden where they, they hid. They went and hid themselves and they covered themselves and they didn't want to be confronted by God because they were scared of him. They knew that they believed a lie. They knew that God was right and that they were wrong. They really did die on the inside as God had promised. And we all do the same thing too. When you sin, sin really does bring spiritual death. It's corroding your insides. Every time you sin, yes, you have been delivered in Christ if you're a believer. But there's a reality that sin, it eats at us. It eats at the soul. And we need saved from that. You need redemption from that. That feeling that you get that we just talked about, that spiritual uh, that, that feeling is a spiritual feeling. It's death and dying on the inside. And God wasn't lying when he said, the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. No, they didn't croak over physically dead, did they? But they spiritually died that day. There was death that was brought into the world. Sin brings death. So we all know that. We all experience it. But we, we need saved from it, don't we? So what's the remedy? How do, we, how do we get saved from this? Where is there good news? Because you can't outrun it. You can't save yourself. So what do we do? What do we look to? We look to the gospel. We look to redemption, the good news that we find in Christ Jesus, which we'll get to in a moment. But if, if we look back at Genesis, we just get a small glimpse of that, just a shadow of the redemption that our text reveals today. In Genesis, God calls for Adam to come out from the hiding, and it says that he did this. I want you to catch this. Think about my words, what God did. It says he made garments of skins. He made garments of skins to cover them instead of the leaves. Think about that. Where do you get skins from? Do skins grow on trees? Were there skins coming off the, the trees in that garden? Was that part of the fruits? No. You needed sacrifice. There was death that had to be had to get that skin. So the skin comes from some kind of animal, and the text doesn't tell us what kind of animal or anything, but this is where I'd like to come back to those four identifiers of Jesus that John the Baptist gives us. The creation narrative in Genesis, it doesn't fill in all the gaps. 
It's, it's not told exactly how God's cosmic story of redemption is going to unfold. All they get is, I'm going to stomp the serpent's head. And they say, well, great. I don't know how that works out. But, but we do. That's the beauty of the gospel. We can see how this unfolds. And that's why this is so important. When we look at this text, this was a really big moment. And I want you guys to kind of feel that. As we read this text and we, as we look at John's gospel, this was really, really new at one point. And I want it to kind of be new for us every day. The gospel should have a freshness to it. Every time you look at it and you see words like, Behold the Lamb of God, I want you to do that, church. I want you to behold the Lamb of God. Not just think back of those people that beheld the Word of God and know a little bit more facts about your Bible. I want, as we engage this text this morning, to behold our Lamb, our sacrificial Lamb, our God. So let's do just that. The text says in verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I don't have to tell any of you this, I don't think, but what this is pointing to, what John is pointing to, is the sacrificial system in Israel to atone for sins. I think all of you are basically familiar with it, but an animal was sacrificed in the place of a sinner, and it was given it was given as a sign and a seal that they were at peace with God. So you sinned, and instead of you dying, which should happen, right? The wages of sin is death. They killed an animal instead and says, that death that you deserved, we're going to place on that animal, and your sins are going to be atoned for. That lamb would have evoked all kinds of biblical imagery to the Jews. Right? We don't have much imagery for lambs. We don't think about it. We think of yeah, cows, and we talked about that earlier this morning. But, but we don't have like this, this mental image that comes to us with lambs like they would. They would have thought of like the Passover lamb. They would have thought of having to raise a lamb or going to buy a lamb at the market, this spotless, cute little lamb, maybe even with their kids with them, the kids carrying this lamb, and they're going to go chop it up, and they're going to get blood everywhere afterwards. Right? That's the kind of image that they had. I can kind of resonate with that a little bit. I'll just give a little bit of a story one time. Uh, I went to act- I actually had a lamb at one time. I had a little lamb n- named Peep. My brother and I, uh, we had lambs on Easter one year. Dad and Mom said it was a good idea to go and get Easter lambs. So that's what we did. We went and got Easter lambs. Braden named his, my brother, Braden, he named his Bo, and I named mine Peep. So we hop up in the back of the truck. We get to this lamb farm, um, and we're sitting in the back of the truck. He's like, now you've got to be careful, lamb uh, or sheep. They're very skittish. So they're very nervous animals. So make sure you're gentle and care, and you're being soft with them, and don't do any fast movements or anything like that. So Braden hops there up there with Bo, and Peep is on my lap. And I'm just talking about how gentle Peep is. She's just not making a peep, and she's so quiet and, and just not making any movements. And I see the guy over there that we're buying the lamb from, the farmer, talking to my parents, just kind of nervously talking to them. And then dad comes over and he's like, son, the lamb's dead. <laughs> so, so this lamb had a heart attack. I guess that's like a common thing. But I just think about that, how peaceful that was. I didn't even know the lamb died, right? It, I was just sitting there petting this little boy, just happy to have this pet lamb. I did get a replacement lamb. But I just think about this process in Israel. These people went through something like that. They picked up a lamb. They brought it home. And that little lamb was going to be a lamb that... Their sins were going to be attached to. They're going to slaughter this thing. That beautiful white fur, they're going to get blood all over it. It's going to be stained. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be nasty. And this is the kind of things that the Jews would have been thinking of. That's what they think of when they think of lambs. So we think cute little uh, Mary had a little lamb kind of thing. That's what we think of. We don't attach it to the, the nastiness of the sin. So I want you to get that. I want you to feel that when we think about behold the lamb this morning that takes away the sin of the world. So that Passover lamb, that would have evoked imagery. They would have had images like Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. Right? Again, a father and a son 
going up the mountain with that sacrificial animal that wasn't there in that case. Do you remember that story? I want you to catch the wording here. I think this is very significant. When they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to his father, this is a quote, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Interesting, isn't that? Abraham says God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. And he did that in the story. A lamb is provided. And just like in the garden, God provides a covering for the skins, uh, covering for the skins of Adam and Eve for the animal. It covers them in their sins. But these were just shadows, Hebrews tells us. The bulls and the goats could never take away sins is what Hebrews tells us. So we needed something more effectual. A lamb can't take away your sins. Because a lamb is a lamb. It's not a human. We need an equivalent sacrifice. So they were waiting for some kind of way where this actually clicked with them. All through this self-sacrificial system where they're sacrificing lambs and they should be sacrificing themselves. They know that there's a little bit of disconnect. But there's a point when there comes one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not talking about an animal at that point. He's pointing to a person. And that person is Jesus. He's saying, this is the lamb that you've been waiting for. All this suffering that you've seen of these animals, all that process, the the blood, the gore, the grossness, because of your sin, right there, it's going to be taken out on him. So John says, behold the lamb of God who takes us into the world. Church, I want you to behold God this morning. I want you to behold that lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That word behold, in a real sense, it means just look, fixate, hold it close, realize what's going on, and get on the same page. I want you to see the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this one, John says, will bring an end to this ruthless, bloody cycle. Isaac says, behold the fire and the wood, where's the lamb? John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's here. You have a sacrificial lamb given for you, church. So, let's move on. We have the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Again, John thinks cosmically. He doesn't say, who takes away your sin. He doesn't say, who takes away Israel's sin. This is Jews and Gentiles alike that he's talking to. And he says, this man takes away the sin of the world. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles being brought together, having all their sins, not just Israel. This is significant, guys. This is breakthrough in their time. We're all Gentiles, and we just assume, well, we just got grafted in. God's great. Grace is awesome. Whatever. But we don't realize that there was a long time when we didn't get to be a part of this. We had no process. We weren't in Israel's system. There wasn't a common Jewish system where we could bank on and say, well, God's going to take care of us because we're part of his covenant people. We weren't. We were grafted in. We had to be brought into that olive branch, that olive root, which is Christ. And then John shows up saying, Jesus takes away the sin of all the world. He takes the sin of Jews and Gentiles. So whereas there was a a, a common Jewish system that they could bank on, there's now a common human situation that we as Jews and Gentiles can relate to as Christ as human. Not Christ as Jew, but Christ as human. He is a human given for us. So this world that's been piling up sin since Adam has finally encountered a real solution to the problem of evil. right? That perennial problem that we're always coming back into. The problem of sin, the problem of evil. We see suffering around. Well, there's a solution. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for a long time, they didn't know how this worked. And there was kind of confusion about this. When we look back at Genesis, Genesis 6-5 says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You've probably heard this before. He was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. You know what comes next? The flood. This is Genesis 6, right? God looked at man and he said, they're a mess. 
They're sinners. They look like you guys, by the way. They, 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 they are sinners. They are like you. They're like me. They had evil thoughts. You have evil thoughts. And the nature of man hasn't changed. Catch this. We haven't changed as humans. We're still human. We still are born into sin. And we are still in that only evil continually stage until we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So seeing this utter corruption, God sent the flood to wash the earth of sinners like you and me. Now catch that. I didn't say he to wash the world of sin. I said sinners. Where the sin and the center were, or sinner were still identified as one. He washed the person and the sin. None of that love the sin or love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. He says, no, all of it, they're gone. Think about that. God's judgment on sin is serious. Now, was that a permanent solution when he washed all the evil of the world and there was just no in his family? Was that a permanent solution? No. But it wasn't meant to be. God knew that. God had foresight. He knew what was going to happen. So God did have favor on Noah, the righteous man, and he was delivered through the ark. But right after this new world, we might call it, this recreation event happened where uh, God established Noah and started over with a clean slate, kind of like Adam, right? Noah steps out from the ark, looks around, he says, just me, just me and my family here. We're going to start over, right? New, New beginning. It says in Genesis 9, 20 through 21, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Sounds kind of like Adam, doesn't it? Work the garden, keep it. A man made from the dust. This new Adam has come. He planted a vineyard. He's working the garden. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered and naked in his tent. Isn't that interesting? So we're back to where we began, aren't we? New creation. Start. Take dominion. Work the garden. Keep it. Do, do Care for the world that you've been given. Shame. Nakedness. He's in the same spot that Adam and Eve were at. Right back there again. We need a Savior. That's what this text is telling us this morning. We need a Savior. So the first creation fell exactly as, or the first recreation fell exactly as the first creation did. And this is why baptism of Jesus is so important. So we're going to shift a little bit. It covers us with a new identity. It changes our identity from sinner to something else. We're now identified with the one that we're baptized into. So this is going to kind of shape the way that we think about baptism. I want you to think about this this morning. This is why God covered Adam and Eve with skins. They were to be identified with the sacrificial animal. Right? When God saw that Adam and Eve covered in animals, he saw accomplished sacrifice. He says, there is no death necessary anymore. The death has been taken care of. So they have a new identity, which brings us to Jesus covering us. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 33. Now, the New Testament, it talks a lot about baptism, and this can get kind of complicated, and I don't want to get too far into this, but the New Testament does relate baptism to the flood and new creation. If you look in 1 Peter 3, it gives an account of the flood event. It talks about baptism being related to that. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, talking about the flood event, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the flesh or the body, but as an appeal for a clear conscience before God. Now what does that mean? Well, I can't get into all of the, the details of what it means by saves you. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration just because you're baptized that you're going to heaven. We don't believe that. But I will say simply enough that baptism saves you like it saved Noah and his family from the impending judgment of the floodwaters. They still sinned afterwards, right? They still had things that were going on. But God delivered them. He saved them, and he gave them a new identity. It set them apart. And this is why I said last week that Jesus' baptism is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. 
right? And we said the fire fire isn't the craziness. I'm, sometimes we can kind of get it carried away and say, well, the fire just means the, the woo-woo stuff that happens. But that's not necessarily true. The fire is a refining fire. It's the, the purification. And the water, when it pours down, and it's, sorry, Baptists, we're just kind of using biblical imagery here. When the, the water pours down like the rain and the floodwaters, God separates you from the judgment of the world and leads us into a new creation just like the ark did in baptism. Think about that, where you're set apart and delivered. So Peter points our baptism back to the flood and the renewed event where God refined the world of sin and saved his people. And perhaps this is why you see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. When Noah was trying to identify the new creation to find out where the new world, whether it was ready or not to inhabit, what did he send out the window? He sent a dove out the window. Imagine that. He sends a dove. And that dove, it came back. Remember, he sent it out and it came back. And why? It says, because the dove had nowhere to set its foot. In other words, the new creation wasn't ready yet. So he sends it out again. Noah sends that dove out again. And what's it come back with the next time? An olive branch. That's another interesting thing, isn't it? So he sends it out again. He sends the dove out and the dove never comes back. Because obviously the dove finds some place to rest its foot. It finds the new creation. It finds that there's a a new creation ready to inhabit. So the dove obviously symbolizes the Holy Spirit. We see that in the text. And the same spirit who hovered over the water in the beginning of creation in Genesis is that spirit that descended on Jesus. And Jesus is identified even further in Romans 11 as that olive branch. Where the Jews and the Gentiles are all grafted into this one branch, speaking about that same covenantal root. We're all grafted in. Isn't that amazing? So the dove appears because it's a sign that the new creation has come in Jesus. And the new world is ready to be inhabited. We're ready to be baptized. We're ready to be in Christ. Christ is here. We're ready to start the kingdom. The kingdom of God where we're reigning with Christ. So the, the lamb takes away the, who takes away the sin of the world is identified by John the Baptist as the one who the Holy Spirit will rest on like a dove. Now John probably knew Jesus and encountered him before. But John says in the text he didn't know Jesus. What he's saying there is he didn't know that he was the Messiah. John was kind of like a, a relative of Jesus. He was kind of like a cousin of Jesus. So yes, he had probably seen Jesus before, but there was a sign that God was going to give to John the Baptist that was going to say, John, you'll know that the Messiah comes when you see the Spirit resting on him. So that's what he means. When he's, it's, it's as if to say, John, you will know when the new creation comes because that great symbol of a dove who searches for a, a habitable new creation has found a place to rest her foot. The new creation is ready to be entered. It's ready to come into, and you enter it through baptism in Jesus. So after 400 years, the promised land, remember we said it's 400 years between Malachi and when this event is happening. 400 years, significant, isn't it? Just like 400 years in the wilderness, stepping into the promised land. So after 400 years, the promised land is ready to be entered, and you enter it in Jesus. Jesus is the new creation. And we, begin, we get to be new creations in Christ Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what God's word says. So Jesus clothes our nakedness and sin and baptism like he did Adam and Eve with the sacrificial animal. When we are baptized, that is our invitation back into the Garden of Eden, back into the kingdom of God, back into the new creation where God is restoring us and the world through that. So being baptized into Jesus is like stepping onto the ark and being rescued from the flood of judgment on sin. 
We enter baptism as old creations, and when we come out and we enter into Christ, we step out as new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come. Isn't that amazing? What Christ has done through this, through the baptismal waters. This, this now brings us back to where we began. In verse 34, it says this. It says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That this is the Son of God. As I said before, I think I said this, maybe I didn't. Uh, there's only two people in Scripture that are identified as Son of God. Do you know who those two people are? They're Adam and Jesus. Now there's lots of sons of God, but there's only to Son of God, the Son of God. The title, the Son of God, is all through the New Testament, talking about Jesus. But it's all started right here, where John said, Behold the Lamb of, the God, or Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Son of God. He's here. He's right here. This is the new Son of God. So the plural, as I said, it's mentioned all through the Scriptures. But the Son of God is a reserved title to only two men who were especially chosen by God to be the firstborn of creation, Adam of the first creation, and then Jesus of the new creation. And Adam's first creation, it failed. That's why you're born in descent. We are all born in Adam. We're descendants from Adam. Adam. But when we're born in Christ, we can't fail. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, kind of like Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, right? Where Adam and Eve were in a garden, though, Jesus is in the wilderness. All the, all the, all the things are wrong about Jesus' situation. All the things are right about Adam and Eve's, and they still failed. And yet Jesus, as he goes out there, he's fasting, he's tired, he's weak, he's in the wilderness. Satan's taunting him, and every time, do you know what the taunt is? What Satan says to him? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. If you are the Son of God, you're hungry, right? We'll turn that stone into bread. If you are the Son of God, he's twisting the words of God. Jesus knows the Word of God. He is the Word of God. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. He's countering back to Satan what Adam and Eve should have done. And he triumphed over Satan. He is the one that conquered. Satan could not be conquered by Adam and Eve. We can't do it. No one in this world will be able to defeat Satan. Christ had to do it first. And we enter into Christ through believing in him, by being baptized into him. And we become one with him. That says if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And you get to step into that role when you're baptized. You get to step into that role as a Christian to be able to fight Satan, to be able to fight sin, to be able to fight temptation and actually be able to make progress and go forward. So Jesus went through his temptation for us as our covenantal head. Just as Adam's sin is counted to us through birth, so Christ's righteousness is counted to us who are rebirthed in him and are identified with him in baptism. All of you, when you're born, you're born into sin. You're born like a son of Adam. That's kind of what you are. But when you are born in Christ, you are something different. Your nature changes. You have a new nature, a new identity. You are now something different than you were before. That's the amazing thing about baptism. So church, as we conclude this morning, I hope you see, I hope you look, I hope you behold the identity of Jesus and its significance. Jesus is the new Adam, the new man who has done what we could never do. We fail like Adam every day. 
You sin. That's the things that we confess all the time. We trade truth for lives. We heap up sins. We hide ourselves from our shame. But Jesus has come as our sacrificial lamb to lay down his life for yours so that the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, could be covered. And rather than wiping us out in a flood of judgment, he separates us from our sin, doesn't he? Isn't that the amazing thing? That he doesn't wipe us out. He actually wipes our sin out. And we're now able to take a new identity and take refuge in him. In baptism, we are taking refuge in him like an ark. Right? The, the judgment's coming. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. The judgment's there, but we take refuge in the ark. We take refuge in Jesus. And when we're baptized, we are promised that same spirit that hovered over the waters and brought void to shape, darkness to light. That's promised to you in your baptism. You are promised the Holy Spirit that will come and take up residence in us, to dwell within us, to rest on us just like it rested in Jesus. Right? The, the, the Holy Spirit's not going from place to place. It's staying in you. It's taking up residence in you and bringing it from the chaos in your life to order. Just like God spoke and created order in the beginning from the void, you were able to do that. You were able to bring order to your life through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And most importantly, we're given a new identity in Jesus. We are Christians now. We are not sinners. We are Christians. We're no longer identified with the first son of Adam. The old has passed away. We are made new creations in Christ Jesus, the true and better son of God. And with that comes the fatherly approval. Do you remember what was said upon Jesus when he was baptized? This is the baptism of Jesus, if you didn't know that. When that dove comes, it's not just Jesus was hanging out and the dove just flew down. He was being baptized. This is a baptism of Jesus. Do you remember what the father said about Jesus? This is my son and whom I'm well pleased. That is promised to you in your baptism. When you are baptized, God says that over you. He says, I am pleased with you just as I am pleased with my son. You have a new identity. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are clean in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. The new has come. So you might be saying, what does this mean to me? A lot of you in here, you've already been baptized before. You think, well, what does a service on baptism have to do anything with me? Well, first, this is a chance for you to remember your baptism. Have you heard that phrase before? Remembering your baptism? I always like to split words up. It brings a whole new meaning. Split up uh, the remember word. Re and member. Reconnect. Remember yourself to baptism. This morning in the Sunday school, there was a, a beautiful line that had nothing to do with baptism. But it said, God gave us memory so that we could have roses in December. I love that line, by the way. That, that's kind of how it is with our baptism. You can remember your baptism. You can look back to that event where God did something amazing in your life. God spoke a different word over you in your life. Before, God saw sinner. He saw sin. He saw problem. He needed sacrifice to have that changed. And Jesus becomes that sacrifice for you. And only through Jesus, that Lamb of God, laying his life down for you, and you being identified with him in baptism, can that change. So church, if you haven't been baptized this is your opportunity. You need to come. Please talk to me afterwards. If you've never been baptized, it is a beautiful thing to have your identity changed from sinner to saint. From being a broken and messy person to being having a new reordered identity. To where you say, no, I don't have to live that way. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And when you get that, you have this beautiful reminder for the rest of your life. A beautiful remembering event where you can do like the Israelites did as they crossed from the Jordan River. They crossed from the wilderness into what? The promised land. And what did they do on the way? They set up stones so that they might be able to look back and remember. So that people could ask, what are these here for? Why do we have these stones? That's what your baptism is like. It's that event where you can look back and see 
God did an amazing thing here. He delivered me from wilderness to promised land, from old identity to new identity, from judgment on sin to salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what your baptism means, church. That's the thing that we have to look back on each and every day, even if you are baptized. It's not just something we look forward to. You can look back to it as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you